we've entered the Anthropocene, an epoch shaped by human activity. With science and technology, we have accomplished incredible things, but also caused undeniable damage to the planet's environment. It's becoming more and more crucial to understand how our system of knowledge shapes the world around us. And to move forward, we have to look back. In 1982, sponge divers of the coast of southern Turkey, near Kars, stumbled upon a shipwreck dating back to the Late Bronze Age. The find revealed an immense cargo, almost 17 tons, comprised of raw materials, manufactured goods and personal effects from all corners of the then known world. Ingots of copper, tin as well as glass, cobalt blue, turquoise and lavender, logs of blackwood from Africa, secret pottery and oil lamps, a gold scarab inscribed with the name of Nefertiti, swords in the Canaanite, Mycenaean and Italian style, an armor scale of Near Eastern type, beads of amber of Baltic origin, and a small writing tablet folding along ivory hinges, its wax writing surface sadly lost. The ship was likely traveling along a 1,700 mile long trade route when it sank for unknown reasons at Cape Uluburun, a voyage that is all but comparable with those of the large cargo ships that sail the oceans today and have become the symbol of a current global supply chain. This is The Evolution of Knowledge, a podcast created by Sissa Ilas and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. My name is Diego Vizintin. You are about to hear from my colleague Sofia Gru. Today we are talking about globalizations. Against the backdrop of the Evolution of Knowledge scientific meeting, we had the chance to sit down and talk with Professor Omodeo and Professor Brentius. Could you introduce yourself for our listeners? My name is Sonia Brentius and I'm a historian of science. Uh, my field of expertise are Islamic aid societies, but I also uh, engaged in my life uh, with issues uh, concerning history of science in Europe in the Middle Ages, in the early modern period, and uh, in the last years I also work on uh, certain topics that concern South Asia and East Asia. Okay, my name is Pietro Omodeo. I'm a professor of historical epistemology in Venice at Foscari University. Um, I would say I'm an early modern historian of science with, uh, with a big interest in epistemology. So I'm carrying out a, an epistemological history of science and a historicized uh, epistemology. These are my main interests. Thank you and welcome. So globalization is a contemporary term, but over the last 30 years, the view that it's also a uniquely contemporary phenomenon has changed. And there is more and more research showing that cultural and scientific exchanges took place regularly, starting all the way back in ancient and even prehistoric times. Professor Brentius, have you encountered this re-evaluation in your own experience? 
as a student and then as a young scholar, I had learned we have translations uh, from Arabic, for instance, into Latin in the 12th century, early 13th century, and then there was silence. Yeah? Uh, the relationship across the Mediterranean were characterized by war. And so we didn't think that there was anything going on in terms of contacts, relationships. The first thing that happened was after this period with the uh, Napoleonic uh, expedition and war to Egypt in the late 18th century. So you can imagine my surprise (laughs) when I uh, sort of started looking uh, for something that would link Europe uh, with the Middle East in the early modern period, uh, that I found quite a number of travel accounts of uh, people from Italy, from France, from England, a little less from German countries, uh, where scholars went to uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, or the Turks, right? Uh, Or further east uh, to Iran, to India, to acquire knowledge, to buy manuscripts, uh, to talk to people. And they had uh, a lot of exchange, yeah? And so for me, out of a sudden, my entire... uh, historiography in a sense, yeah, what I knew about history and the relationships between the people I work on and uh, the people on the European side, Christian, Catholic, Protestant, that this was simply wrong. It was not true. Yeah? And so uh, I got really interested and thought, okay, let's look what is going on here in this kind of relationship. And what you see is, at least this is my take out of this, kind of relationship that the second historiographical issue uh, lost its footing with these investigations, namely the decline of knowledge in the Islamic countries. So my impression was from this European literature uh, in the 17th century mostly, because I'm usually not working on the 18th century, uh, that the uh, knowledge on both sides was still relatively on the same level. Not totally, this is never the case, yeah, but very closely related. And this has something to do, of course, with the uh, fundamental um, basis of the two knowledge systems, which come from antiquity bis until uh, certain other elements. Yeah? So there's different elements in the Islamic side and different elements in the Christian European side. But what they share is a common uh, understanding of philosophy, of medicine, of the mathematical sciences, etc., that was uh, coming from, in the Islamic case, mostly Greek texts. And so it's relatively easy uh, to figure out uh, whether the distances were really already big. And that was the other sort of thing I learned as a graduate student, as a young young scholar, that mm, after 1200, maybe 1300, there is no real science in the Islamic world. And that's not true. Yeah, two surprises at the same time. Uh, And I was quite sort of happy to learn that uh, many of the, not all, but many of the documents that are available in European libraries, let's say in the Vatican, for Italy or in the Laurentiana in Florence or in the Marciana in Venice uh, came from the Middle East in the 16th and 17th century because these people were interested in what existed on the other side. They wrote lists telling their travelers by this manuscript and by that text. So in this sense, it was an interesting, intriguing period where people 
despite the fact that they sort of were not always nice to each other, right? And uh, also wrote things I do not like that much. Uh, but they were uh, in cultural exchange. They were uh, talking to each other. Yeah? Sometimes even really working with each other. So we have letters uh, from both sides of the Mediterranean up to the northern European countries uh, where scholars at universities asked uh, library owners and, and book traders in Aleppo, for instance, yeah? buy me this book, please, and send it to me. And indeed what you get in some cases, uh, in the later 17th and early 18th century, that they really uh, sort of not only include what I describe, yeah, but really nominate people from the Middle East or North Africa to be a member of their community. Yeah? So you get the Moroccan ambassador uh, elected a member of the Royal Society in London. And so it's, it's never uh, a very big group. Yeah, that's for certain. Uh, but you have this, and there is this understanding uh, that it makes sense to talk to each other. Professor Amodeo, have these types of early globalization always taken place? And are they important for the understanding of the history of science? Yeah, I would say this is one of the main interests in Jürgen's book of Jürgen himself. Uh, he claims that there has, have always been entangled global exchanges of knowledge, Uh, which I think it's a very important perspective. Uh, he and his group in Berlin, which I know very well, I've been working in Berlin for, for years, uh, were very attentive to artifacts, the transmission of objects, uh, not only scientific objects, but also objects in general, material witnesses uh, of knowledge or a sort of materialized memory of, um, of knowledge. Myself, I think it, it's a very important perspective to keep in mind the global, the planetary even. Um, I think it's, it's been a process, a process which is a knowledge process and a material process. That is the history of science. Uh, it has been a process towards a sort of unification that has been uh, going on for, for millennia. So while we see connections, networks in the past, I've been working on little globalization moments like the circulation of astronomical knowledge in the, belt, in the Baltic area. Or you can imagine the, the circulation of knowledge in the Mediterranean basin having Venice uh, at its center. Um, beginning from the, uh, from the late 15th century through colonialism, we really achieved, if I can use this word, a unified globe. I say achieved with some, you know, with some caution because it's Uh, it's the time of colonialism, so it's it marked a big step towards uh, global unification, but also injustice. So we have to cope with the two sides of uh, of globalization, which is a political one, a scientific one from the very inception. So think of the unification of the two spheres, the two hemispheres of the heavens, the northern and the southern, by the uh, so-called explorers. Uh, Vespucci himself very soon started to 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 map the stars of the southern hemisphere and we have a time of really of globalization the sense of unification of the northern and southern uh, hemispheres in astronomy uh, going hand in hand with the process of political unification and the political unification is still something we have to deal with today with the the, the climate and the environmental crisis at the center 
And I'm pointing to the early modernity because it's a time uh, in which the, the, the political settings of modernity have been established in many ways with the imbalances, with the hegemonies that we still have to, to cope with and with the economical structures. Very important to think about. Both of you in your work have often dealt with the Mediterranean as a basin of cultural and scientific exchange. Do any examples of knowledge traveling from one place to the other or one group to the other come to mind that are particularly noteworthy? Uh, what I like really best, because it was uh, just not seen with our focus on texts and instruments, uh, is what happened in uh, the 14th century uh, in the Mediterranean, yeah, uh, in map making. And so you get these so-called Portland charts or nautical charts, uh, which we do not have before 1400, at least not extant. Maybe they are textual references, but no charts. And uh, one subgroup of these charts are densely uh, illustrated uh, with figures and all sorts of things, uh, not only at the coastline, but also in, on the mainland. Yeah. When you analyze these things, what you see is that, that three cultures were brought together and amalgamated, yeah? so maybe even four, right? So something Byzantine, namely elements of Ptolemy's geography, 100 years before we celebrate the translation from Greek into Latin in Italy. Uh, that is already interesting. Uh, you have quite a, a number of Arabic elements in these Portland charts. So uh, there were people in Genoa and Venice who could read not only Greek, but also Arabic. Yeah? Because in, in uh, at least one world map by Pietro Visconti, we have in Latin letters Arabic words. So they really had access to an Arabic source. Yeah? And that's also extremely interesting uh, because that's 1320-ish yeah? in, in Venice, somebody reading Arabic. Not bad, talking to craftsmen, telling them what's on the map, not bad. Uh, then you have uh, sort of the standard Latin world maps uh, are elements in, so these craftsmen had somebody or they themselves knew that, how to read Latin and to uh, have access to a manuscript and find uh, a world map there. That's not an easy thing. I mean, there are not so many world maps and manuscripts. So one, one needs to really think about what that all means in terms of uh, education, literacy, uh, material objects, etc. Yeah? And so out comes what? Uh, a view of the Mediterranean world uh, in a Jewish workshop in Mallorca yeah? in the 13-whatever, 70s, maybe, maybe a little later. It's difficult because it's not really dated. And that uh, is dominant for 100, 150 years for the sea chart making in Italy, in North Africa. It becomes dominant in the Greek uh, sea charts, um, in France, in Spain, in Portugal. So it's a Mediterranean cultural product of knowledge uh, that you do not find that often. Yeah? And that's why I love it, yeah? because it's so against the grain yeah? that you have these different elements together, and of course, people behind it. Yeah? Usually what you have is uh, Arabic into Latin, and three, four people around it. Yeah? Uh, let's say a Christian from Italy, a Christian from Spain, and maybe a Jew. Yeah? That's a normal thing. Or in the Arabic side, you have a Greek person, maybe somebody who's 
maternal language is Syriac, and then somebody with Arabic. Yeah? So this kind of. But these, these maps are so much richer. Yeah? And in a period when you don't expect it. So working with objects is really uh, sometimes quite surprising. Uh, okay, uh, I, I would need to think, but uh, I can uh, mention the uh, the discussions about Cetites in uh, in the Middle Ages, but especially in the in the 16th century and from the 16th century onward. So a collection of data from uh, from local uh, movements of waters and the variations of their height, um, which was fundamental for navigation for harbors. Uh, it was fundamental to, to trace routes, uh, but it was also very important to discuss about planetary uh, phenomena um, and cosmological ones too, because you know there is the meteorological element as well as the um, as the astronomic one. So it's at the same time a very localized knowledge and a very global one. I think it's a very good case. Sea tides discussions uh, of a very local knowledge that at the same time implies uh, global knowledges. And since I'm from Venice, at least I've been from, Ven from Venice for a few years, I started looking at uh, scientific and also administrative sources dealing with uh, problems of water levels. Uh, sea tides are very much part of it. And just to mention how this is reflected in the history of science more generally, think of the, the key importance that Galileo gave to sea uh, tides as one of his main arguments in favor of the motion of the Earth in uh, the Copernican perspective, which, uh, which is still a puzzling element in the Dialogo, um, but is a relevant element in the general history of uh, modern science. So you can see the connection between roots, connections, um, data and information collected all over the place, uh, and famous uh, moments in the history of uh, modern science. You mentioned the importance of the political aspects of globalization. What are the social and cultural conditions usually required for knowledge sharing to occur between cultures? Mm, uh, okay, being a historian, I, I'm a bit cautious with usually in history. Um, I see trends, developments, uh, a lot of contingencies, and the contingencies become necessary once, as you say, certain conditions are uh, are given. I don't think there is a general formula um, about how um, exchange can be facilitated. I really think that there are concrete objective material problems that need solutions, and they call for intervention at various levels, political, societal, uh, individual, ethical, and of course, scientific and technological. So I think the, the the fact that today the environment has become a crucial issue uh, is an objective problem. That's why uh, it's at the center of epistemic developments, of the developments in the, the public debates, uh, positions that are so various as you can only imagine. Uh, so I think there is a there are material constraints in the evolution uh, of our planet and our history that call for uh, for answers at certain points. And if the answers are not already given in the instruments we have, the scientific instruments, we have the technological, the societal ones, that's the moment in which uh, big leaps forward in our knowledge are required. I'm not sure if we can always achieve that, uh, but that's, I think, something that is very evident from today's engagement in the public discourse as well as in the scientific one. 
uh, with the questions of the Anthropocene, if we want to call them uh, like that. And as you can see, it's not only the geologists discussing that. It's not only the geologists and the philosophers, the uh, climate scholars, the historians, the, the technology philosophers, etc. Discussing that it's really a debate that involves all possible uh, actors and all possible disciplines because it's our life. The evolution of knowledge also mentions intrinsic and extrinsic developments of societies, where the extrinsic developments happen when a society changes upon encountering a different culture. Are there any examples of societies changing drastically when they encounter a different system of knowledge? Uh, yes, sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I just mentioned colonialism, uh, which is, I think, one of the, I mean, it's it's paramount example of of encounter of distant, distant humanities that were not connected and all of a sudden become connected. Uh, and the technological and scientific plays a crucial issue. It's been very much in uh, discussed topic, the, the technological and scientific gap, or at least the technological and scientific uses uh, of science in different contexts uh, that made the, the European colonial uh, enterprise possible in the, in the first place, uh, which is not only science and technology, though. It's also socioeconomic structures. There is uh, the booming early capitalist uh, moment that fuels the, 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 the specific use of technologies going in the direction that, uh, that I mentioned. Another aspect to consider is that when two societies encounter each other, the exchange is often not symmetrical, but there can be huge power imbalances at play. How do these power imbalances influence the process of knowledge sharing? Yeah, or not sharing sometimes even. Um, let me mention an example that I, I think it's, it's a very interesting one. Um, the, the conquest of Tenochtitlan uh, by the Europeans, uh, it was a, a Mesoamerican capital, uh, today Mexico City. Uh, Europeans conquered that. They didn't have the knowledge to, uh, to manage the waters of the city. So it was an island uh, in the middle of the, the mountains um, that just like Venice was a living artifact, we can, we can say, uh, with specific scientific, local and engineering knowledge. Uh, the Aztec engineers knew how to cope with it. They knew the territory, they knew the, uh, the conditions, they had the knowledge. Uh, and that created a strange imbalance between the rulers and the ruled, because the ruled were those who had the technological and local knowledge, whereas the rulers uh, could not leave it to the locals because the cost would have been to be dependent on the, the locals, which I think, historically speaking, led to a disaster, uh, because taking away the, uh, the, the responsibility uh, of taking decisions about the management of the territory led to the long process that led to today's Mexico City as a city without water or too much water in some cases. It's a city that is very unbalanced from the viewpoint of its environmental um, conditions and location and construction. Uh, so this is one of the stories in which more exchange would have been beneficial. And more exchange um, means often um, more local knowledge and more, if I, I would say, participated knowledge, even though I'm not meaning really the participatory science, but 
shared uh, ground of discussion and of exchange of knowledge, which is often very, very local in spite of the global connections that knowledge always has. In the present day, scientific knowledge is often seen as globalized, and as such, it shapes political decisions all around the world, in every country and among international institutions such as the IPCC. But there is also an increasing tension towards independence, both because of political reasons and because of the emergence of problems that seem to require local approaches. What does the future of global science look like in your view? If you would have asked me this a year ago, the answer would have been different, right? I'm working with a group of uh, quantum physicists or particle physicists, as they call themselves in Hamburg, who are very upset and worried about uh, the European sanctions in the science system against Russia, uh, Belarusia. and who say that uh, these sanctions are detrimental to their scientific enterprise because their scientific enterprise is international. Yeah? They have big-scale experiments. If you uh, block uh, the participation of Russian scholars, of Belarusian scholars, if you block the institutional support, you damage Western science. Uh, so uh, they struggled very hard uh, to prevent that from happening, which, given the conditions, uh, was only partially successful. But they are very, very happy that CERN did not follow the EU commission by immediately interrupting everything. Yeah? So CERN and other institutions uh, decided uh, to let the contracts run until the end of '24 as they are signed, and uh, then evaluates the situation once more. And the disruptions were uh, on all levels, participations in conferences, uh, wearing uh, name tags, uh, joint publications, all sorts of uh, rather, I'm sorry to say, idiotic things. Uh, And they try to avoid as much as possible. And there are also groups um, in the U.S. who are refusing to participate in this kind of uh, short-sighted political decision-making. But I think the future is not very bright. Professor Amodeo? So starting from your point, I think the, so also given what I was mentioning, uh, it is neither at the abstract level uh, nor at the very local level that, in my view, the solution should be, should be found. As you say, there, there is a lot of concern about local context, and I think it's right like that uh, because uh, it's local conditions that often uh, give the signals of what needs to be done and mark the, the fine-tuned solutions that sh- need to be to be taken, including the knowledge that is required that is often very local. Uh, but of course, we cannot solve the global problems at a, at a purely local level. 
So I think we should avoid both the top-down solution and the bottom-up as the uh, as the only ones. But we need really a sort of uh, of space uh, in which uh, the the two directions can be uh, molded uh, together. And this is um, say it's first of all a political uh, point. So uh, and it's so it's about democracy. It's about having. Uh, as many people sharing decisions uh, as possible and exchanging. Um, and this is, of course, an epistemological claim too, uh, about which we need to reflect. So what would uh, a shared form of knowledge be? And I would say instead of shared, probably a common knowledge. So we could start thinking of knowledge as a common um, and thinking of knowledge as a common it doesn't mean that we all share the same knowledge. So this is a very important point. It's like the, the, the management of the commons or the decision about um, the commons, say water, for instance. Uh, of course, we don't have the same access to water. We don't live in the same settings. Uh, there is a lot of local knowledge that is embedded in, in and there are people with various competences, scientists, uh, engineers, uh, the local fishing communities, uh, agriculture people, etc. Uh, so a common knowledge, in my view, is rather than a homogeneous knowledge going across the groups, uh, is rather a form of knowledge that benefits from the variety of knowledge that is implemented to address the, the problems, as I said. So I propose to move from shared knowledge to knowledge as a common, as an important perspective for the Anthropocene. Thank you for speaking with us, Professor Modeo and Professor Brentius. We've seen today that knowledge sharing has a long history and that it's always been shaped by the power dynamics surrounding it. Following this thread, in our next episode, we'll discuss the social and political influence that single scientists and whole institutions have had throughout history and still have looking to our future. This has been The Evolution of Knowledge, a podcast created by Sisa Ilas and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, written and produced by Diego Vizintin, Sofia Gru, and Lorenzo Carta. Music by Gregor Kendall. Next time, we'll talk about scientific meetings. But then we realize that use of science in diplomacy or the use of diplomacy in science or the use of science for diplomacy have been always been there in more or less formal ways. And so it's this long durée dimension that we as historians really think is important. Mm-hmm.